Hello everyone, back at it again for another episode of the podcast. Today, I have arguably my biggest guest yet. She's a <laughs> former Paralympian athlete. She completed Athens in 2004 for the wheelchair basketball team. She's done a lot around mental health. She's done a lot to raise awareness and she's a very determined woman. And she's also an emotional behavior support analysis as well. So she's done a lot around that and, she, and in regards to getting people fulfilling their potential. So, Wendy, let's cast our minds back to uh, 1989 when you had that accident. Yeah, was, long gone, sorry. <laughs> what was your initial reaction to when, you, to when you found out that you might not be able to walk again? Uh, well, to start with, I didn't really know a lot about what was happening, to be honest, Connell, because the accident happened so quick. And the first thing I knew about anything was when I woke up in hospital with a ventilator breathing for me. And a doctor telling me I'd had a spinal injury that was going to debilitate me and paralyse me for life. And I remember laying there just thinking, who are you? Where am I? And why are you telling me this stuff? Because I'm fine. That was literally, it was like I was in a full state of denial. I knew I'd had an accident, but I, I felt absolutely fine. So to be honest, I couldn't understand why he was telling me this stuff. So it's slightly bewildered, probably. Yeah, and... You were a passenger on the back of a motorcycle, if I'm correct. It happened to you when you were 17, so you were very much into sport back then as well. You've yeah. always been quite sporty. Um, how determined were you to um, sort of fight and determine and not listen to what the doctor said about you not walking again? So I grew, I grew up in a family where the main saying in the family was there's no such word as can't. Yeah. that was pretty much it if we fell over as kids and cut our knees and that the first thing we'd get laughed at by mum and dad they'd find <laughs> it like massively hysterical to start with then they'd pick you up literally dust you off you know spit on a tissue wipe it and go there you go even if half your knee was hanging off so in my family it's if you fall over you don't stay on the floor for long and um I think for me after the doctor's telling me you know, you're not going to walk. And the fact that my body wasn't operating from the chest down, I just got really angry. So it was mainly, it was, people always say, oh, you know, was it like determination? And, you know, in me, all I'm going to say it was, I'm, I'm a Taurian, so I'm very stubborn. So if you tell me I can't do something, then I'm, I'm going to go and do it. And also frustration and anger, Connell, were my two main drivers. I was so angry and frustrated that nothing was working yeah. and people kept telling me this stuff that didn't make sense. That I just, well, every day I just thought, I'll show you. I'll show you. Get off me. I can do it. You know, <laughs> I'm home. So, uh... Yeah, because like when you sort of cast your mind back to that and I, like, I can imagine, especially when, because I can imagine you went through like loads of physio and you were sort of very, like, sort of very determined not to like, you're very determined to like, do it by yourself and I like I've had operations on my wrist before where obviously it's not as like comparable but like you're sort but I know the feeling when you're sort of really determined like no I can do it I can do it by myself like, I don't need your help like I, I could be a bit stubborn in that regard as well so I know that I know the feelings around that you were in um Stoke Mandeville which is a, oh. a specific unit for um, people with like spinal injuries that was yeah it's, it's a hospital geared up so first of all I was in Broomfield Hospital I mean those guys saved my life there was a doctor called Dr Short if it wasn't for that doctor I wouldn't be here today because I had punctured lung you know I had numerous cardiac arrests they didn't think I'd survive the first first night let alone the next three days so thank you to that doctor for a start but after I think I was in it's all of a bit of a time warp for me I think I was in Broomfield Hospital for six weeks and then it became really, really apparent that they did not know what to do with a spinal injury. And they were sort of getting to the point where we're like, we're not really sure what to do with her now. And my mum and dad decided that they were going to get me flown by helicopter up to Stoke Mandeville. So they'd phoned Stoke Mandeville, but it was when they had all the ambulance strikes and stuff. So they weren't using the air ambulance or any ambulance. So mum and dad actually hired a private ambulance and took me up to Stoke Mandeville. And it was when I got there that I sort of breathed a sigh of relief. Yeah. Because all of the all of the doctors, everybody was just geared up for spinal injuries. So it wasn't, you know, that panic of like, oh, what do we do with our feet? You know, how do we support 
her for pressure or everybody knew exactly what they were doing. So you just felt okay. When you yeah. got there, I got into surgery. I just felt okay. It was like, these people know what they're doing. It'll all be okay. Yeah. And that's the thing as well. Like you're such an inspirational person in that regard to telling a story. And, uh, and I guess that's like one of the things that makes you who you are today. So the thing is, for me in life, this is the funny thing. I never considered myself to be inspirational at all. It's not something all through my life that I ever considered. I mean, we were brought up to protect people who couldn't protect themselves, you know, to have compassion and empathy for people, to treat everybody the same. And my story, as far as I'm concerned, it's just my life. It's just stuff that yeah. happened. You know, it just happened. But the the thing is, the more I've realised over the years, like I've been, what's it been, 30, 31 years is that through me sharing my story and that you can overcome. I mean, I still walk on walking sticks. You know, I'm not running yet. And I always stick the word yet at the end because that's my only goal in life is to get back to running. And it's a nice goal to have because every day I do a little something, you know, mentally or physically to progress myself to that point. But it's nice to know that through me sharing all the mental health problems I had, because obviously it hasn't been an easy ride. I had a lot of depression and stuff. And people to see that actually... When you put your mind to something, you can come out of it. And it's not going to be an easy task, but if you do something every day, you can get a different result. So, you know, it's nice to know that people find me inspiring because to me, it's just life. It's just stuff that happened and I just get on with it. Yeah, you pretty much just answered my next question there, Wendy. Like, I was going to ask you, like, how um, sort of being stuck in hospital affected your mental health. Yeah, that was, I mean, it was in the day way before playstations and xboxes so if you can imagine i had three months what they call bed rest because of the nature of my spinal injury they couldn't put any metal work in my back so i literally had to lay flat on my back for three months and i couldn't sit up you know to get my i think i didn't have my hair washed for two months and in the end i said to the the nurses like you're gonna have to do something it's driving me insane so what they did was they tilted my bed so my head was like pointing down and they put like plastic sheeting under under my hair and like washed my hair in it, into a bucket so it was all draining down I was just like things like that it's the loveliest feeling to just have your hair washed but I mean it was you know um frustrating I was I got told off all the time because the bed I had would tilt you yeah so like for four hours of the day I'd be looking out a window that way and I wouldn't be able to see what's going on behind me and I'm very nosy I like to keep an eye on stuff <laughs> So what I would do is I would I would grab hold of the bar on the other side of the bed and I would rock myself over. And then the ward sister, Sister Parsons, her name was, very aggressive lady, but lovely. She used to walk past and go, Wendy, you should be facing out the other window. And I'd go, uh, no, no, I'm, I was on this tilt. She's like, no, look at your bed. You're not on that tilt. And she'd come over and like tilt me back and go, you will stay there or we will strap you down in your bed. And, you know, and it was, oh, you know, I just, I just want to get out of here. My sister used to come in and play board games on my chest. I never won a game of Monopoly in my life when I played with my sister, especially when I was laying flat down in bed. Yeah. You know, I can't see what she's doing. Um, everybody did what they could, Connell, to make it a nice, as nice as it could be for me. But the most boring, frustrating, I, you know, I lost the plot with a lot of the nursing staff because everything from the chest down had to be done for me. Yeah. And there were certain staff in the end, I got to the point where I'd only let a couple of people touch me and I would get really aggressive because you feel very threatened. You're so vulnerable. You can't do anything for yourself. And I remember like spacking out a couple of times at two particular staff members and saying, if you come near me, I will hit you. And, you know, if you get close enough, I'm going to give you a right hand off. Um, and when I got out of bed, I remember these two staff members sitting down and having a chat with them when I got in a wheelchair. And I just said to them, I'm so sorry for how I treated you when I was laying down. And they were like, it's okay. You know, we understand. It's our job. You you feel vulnerable. You know, we just have to respect that. And they were two of the most loveliest people on the planet. You know, made good friendships with them. But it was horrible. I would never wish it on my worst enemy going through what I went through. Yeah, you've been through quite a lot, especially sort of like now and back then as well because a lot of people will be inspired particularly by your story is because someone might be going through maybe something similar to you or they might be going through uh something in life where they feel they have no purpose what would be your advice to someone who's experiencing that so 
everybody on this planet has purpose. Just think, you know, it's, it's bring it back to the simple things. So some people will seek constantly their whole life. What is my purpose? What is my purpose? And always feel unfulfilled. So I just say, bring it back to the simple stuff. I keep things very black and white and very simple. So for me, because I died when I had my accident and I've had cardiac arrests, you know, I've lost a lot of friends when I was younger in car accidents and all sorts of stuff. Every morning when I open my eyes and breathe, Connell, I just say, thank you. Go on breathing. You know, the fact that I can pick a cup up and drink, whereas a lot of people have neck severs, they're never going to hug anybody again. They're never going to pick a cup up. So it's bring yourself back to just some gratitude. What simple gratitude can you find in that moment? Because there will be something. And every person on this planet has value. Yeah. We all have value. We're all special. We're all unique. You know, we all have our own individual talents. And it's just start exploring every day, you know, what, what is unique to you, not what's unique to someone else and what you think someone else thinks you should be doing. But just, just exploring that, follow your heart, follow your passion, follow your gut, you know, start following your instincts and just finding those things on a daily basis that make you tick. Yeah, and if anyone's listened to this, I would strongly recommend particularly, that, particularly what Wendy has just said because we're all guilty of taking like the small things for granted. Like, as you were saying, like picking up a cup or, um, I don't know, grabbing something from the shelf or like washing our hair it's those sort of little things that we all we all are guilty of taking for granted and and especially this year like I've learned particularly like not to take the small things for granted not to sweat the small stuff and and a lot of people are quite guilty of doing that and that is one of the reasons why like mental health in particular can it can affect people's mental health and often like we find ourselves almost like living our lives for other people. Yeah, the com- the comparison. I mean, nowadays as well, you know, we all have this. We all have this media stream yeah. that's constantly coming in that's showing you pictures of how you're not good enough and you see the snippets of people's lives, you know. People only put on social media that little snippet of where everything's like what I call Von Trappland, where we're all singing and dancing. Yeah. My life, life isn't like that. My life's not like that. People go, oh, you know... You, you do so much, you do this. I, st- I still am an emotional human being. I still wake up some days and have to remind myself, you know, how lucky I am and to be grateful. I have a beautiful dog that's getting old in years now, you know. Oh. And instead of feeling sad about that, I feel joy for, for having him. I still get down. I still get doubt. You know, I still have limiting beliefs. What I do with them, though, is I change them because I recognise that when something comes in, if it's not supporting me, do I need it? The brain is under my control. So I have a choice, Connell. Do I sit and listen to it? You're not good enough. You're not worthy enough. You've not got what they've got. Do I listen to that or do I go, actually, no, and stop the record? Because it's just an auto, autopilot response that we've been trained to have. And when you take back the control, you can change it because your thoughts direct the chemistry in your body. And just that little thing of recognising, actually, just recognising and becoming aware of going actually I'm thinking myself into a hole here is this really where I want to go and if you don't want to go there if you do go there because sometimes we need to feel bad so we know what good feels like you don't need to be down there for too long though and you can bring yourself out of it you know I use music I read things I phone friends that make me laugh you know my dog makes me laugh I put comedy on you know I exercise I go out in the woods so if I want to change my state and get myself out of that place because I can feel myself dropping I I purposefully, I think that's what it is, Connell, now. I now live life on purpose rather than on autopilot. That's a very good analogy to put it. And often we do sort of live life through, a lot of people in particular live life through sort of autopilot and we sort of try and worry about what other people are doing where in actuality we don't really have to. It's like you've got to look at the positives within yourself and sort of, not take for granted like like me and you've been saying throughout that like don't sweat the small stuff like don't take the small things like doing for granted because there is a person out there that might that might not have those things like for example there's people um who are in wheelchairs or they're paralyzed from maybe the neck down or they're paralyzed from there or they might 
or there's some people that might be in poverty and they don't have those things. So it's sleeping on, sleeping on the streets. They haven't got heat they can't have a wash. You know, they've got no food in the fridge. There's, there's so many people that, you know, aren't in the position we're in. And it's just reminding yourself, being a bit humble and reminding yourself of that. I mean, I do a lot. It's one thing I, I never like to shout about, but I do a lot for people in those positions because I feel so fortunate and grateful for where I am and, you know, what I have that I do do a lot. I've been supporting so many people through lockdown, not just in this country, but people who've, who've just run out of food for their families. And, you know, so anything I've been earning and been bringing in, I've been sending. I don't need a lot. I actually don't. I'm not a stuff type of person, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Just as long as I'm paying my bills and me and my dog are happy, I'm I'm quite happy. So, yeah, I, I find great joy in giving, Connell. So one of the things in life that I always say, if you're feeling down, go and give to someone else. Because that really does, that will bring you some joy and fulfilment on the inside. Genuinely just go and give. You know, I'm, all, I'm always doing that. My friends will tell you, you know, they'll, they'll go, oh, I like that. You know, they'll come in my house. I've got lots of crystals about. I have clients that come around and go, oh, that's a lovely crystal. I go, there you go. <laughs> it's going yeah. home with you now. And they're like, oh, you <laughs> no, actually, you, lo- you love that. And it's been sat there and, you know, if it's bringing you joy, take it with you. Not that I'd give everything away in my house. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Not my dog. But is that yeah? When you're giving to others, it brings it brings a lot of joy. Yeah, definitely don't. Uh, yeah, definitely don't take away the dog. <laughs> no, 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 no one's getting the dog. Yeah. yeah okay. That never happened. Okay. The next topic I sort of want to go on to now is you were a participant in the Olympics, which I introduced you on the basis of, you were, you were a Paralympian athlete, you partaked in a wheelchair basketball. How did that come about? Random set of events. So I have a, unfortunately, I had a friend of mine who a couple of years after me, no, actually, a couple of years before he introduced me to wheelchair basketball, he had a spinal injury. He broke his back. He was only doing five mile an hour on his motorbike, turned funny, fell off and broke his back. And he started playing wheelchair basketball and he came around my house one night. He went, he was so excited. He was like, Wendy, I found this new sport. You've got to come and have a go. They train in Molden just down the road. You'll love it. And I was like, what is it? He said, I'm not telling you, just come down on Tuesday night. So I remember turning up down there and seeing all these guys going in in wheelchairs and I was on crutches. And I walked in and they brought me over a wheelchair, said here, this is, you know, wheelchair basketball. And I was like, wow, how do you play basketball in a wheelchair? Didn't even know this game existed. So I've got this chair with without an anti-tip bar on it. So if you leant back quick, you'd flip out of it. Yeah. And they started the training session and they were warming up and they were all flying around the court. And I thought, wow, this looks really easy. So I've gone to push, like instantly jammed my fingers in the wheel. Thought, ow, that hurt, oh. you know. Uh, someone threw me a ball. I've looked up, it hit me in the face because I just wasn't ready for it. Um, and then I remember, you know, them trying to teach me to dribble. And I was bouncing the ball that was hitting the chair and disappearing off. I was having to chase this ball around. I spent the whole night, Connell, not joking, right, falling backwards out the chair, getting hit in the face with basketballs, and basically chasing a basketball constantly around the sports hall, trying to pick it up. Um, And the thing that that hurt most at the end of the night was my face because I had laughed. I mean, I seriously laughed for three hours continually. And I just, I couldn't shoot a hoop because I was a netball player. I didn't know what this was, like basketball follow-through. And I just remember getting home and thinking, I'm going back there and I'm going to get good at that because I love that. And I just went back week in, week out, started getting the hang of it. Within three months, I was in the Great Britain women's team. And within 18 months, I was at the Paralympic Games. Didn't even know what happened. It was just sort of like, like that. Because I showed potential. And I, I think that's what it is. When you love something and you really love it, you get good at it really quick. And that's all that happened. I found something that brought me so much joy. It was so much fun that before I knew what happened, I was in the Great Britain team at Paralympic Games. That's actually quite amazing because, like, at, at the start, as you were saying, like, you sort of had, you sort of initially maybe you've only done it for a laugh, but it sort of propelled you to play for the Great Britain women's team. And then, like, months and months later, you were at the Paralympic Games, which is absolutely mental. What was your experience of going to the Olympics like? Something something that you couldn't... It's really, it's really hard to sort of put it into words. So when I picked my kit bag up and I got my kit out with the Great Britain kit, it was like that was a moment when it sort of hit home. 
And it was like, I feel proud now, proud. And my parents were really proud as well. And then you get on the, you know, when you're going in through the airport and you're all in your Great Britain kit and everyone's taking pictures of you and you get on the aeroplane. Then when we got out to Athens, you get on a bus and you've got a police escort to take you down to the state, you know, the, the Olympic village. And it starts becoming real. It's like, this is actually, you know, like a bit of a dream. And then, yeah, being there with all the other athletes, it really, it, it on many different levels, did many different things. One, it really humbled me because there were people who were in such a worse condition than me that were playing high performance sport. And that I just found absolutely fascinating. I couldn't believe how good these guys were with the actual, you know, disability. Well, I'm not, it's not a disability with the ability levels they had. It was just amazing to watch all the other sports. And um, yeah, it just made me, made me realize I was actually good at something as well. Even though I didn't know all the rules. I did get a lot of fouls called on me because I got on the court and I still didn't understand half of the rules. So um, yeah, it was quite interesting playing basketball going, what? <laughs> what have I done now? You know, it's like, you can't actually do that to someone else. Can I not? <laughs> I'm sure we do this in training. You know, so, yeah, on many on many different levels, it's yeah, an experience, just utter internal pride, like I'd never felt before. And that and that is amazing as well, because like if anyone's listening to this, like just look at Wendy, like she propelled herself to the Paralympics, and she's literally was playing wheelchair basketball. And this is a message to anyone out there: you can do anything you set your mind to. It's all about mindset. And it's all about the positive mindset you bring upon yourself, because you don't limit yourself and you don't limit your potential. Yeah, you're an all, and just remember, you're an autopilot system. Ninety-five percent of your day is done unconsciously on autopilot for you, so you don't have to keep relearning stuff. And when you understand this, you can go, actually, what am I doing in life that's not very helpful? And then you can just spend a little bit of time focusing on that one thing for maybe seven days, and go, actually, if I just change this little habit here you know, recognize it. I always say to people, there's three aspects to creating change in your life, Connell. Awareness, ownership, and then change. You've got to be aware of what you're doing and what you're not doing. Then you've got to own it. Own it. It's mine. That procrastination, that lack of interest is mine. That lack of enthusiasm, that's mine. I'm doing that. And then when you've become aware of it and you've owned it, you can change it with little tiny changes every day. Never try and do everything in one go, because life is a process, you know. It's not a race, it's a continual lovely journey where we get every moment of the day to make a different choice if we want to. And that's all you have to do. There's no difference between any of us on this planet. The only difference is between success and not is how someone operates this and the little habits they do on a daily basis. That's the only difference. That means any of you can do that and make the change. 100%. And going back to the sort of Paralympics, like who, who was your coach and did they make an impact on you in any particular way? Or <laughs> Yeah. I'd, I'm going to mention his name. Dan McCaffrey's name was. So when, when I first joined the team, we had these love, lovely coaches, uh, Gordon Perry, Morris Hamilton, and a couple of others. They were old school coaches, lovely, lovely people. And they knew how to nurture you to get the best out of you. So they were what, what I'd call positive affirmation coaches. You did something wrong, they'd go, it's not working because X, Y, Z. When you changed it and you got it right, they'd go, that's it, that's it. How does that feel? That's it. Really, really good coaches, really good coaches. And then the association decided they wanted to jazz things up a bit and change it. And they brought in this chap called Dan McCaffrey, and uh, I've never spoken about it. It's the first time I've spoken about him on a podcast. And he came in and he'd just come out of uni. He was all full of enthusiasm, an able-bodied basketball coach, but he had some issues. He knew nothing about disability and he really didn't know how to respond to a women's team. I can't tell you some of the stuff he did because it really wasn't good. So on two tips, right, this guy was so full of enthusiasm. That's what I loved about him. So I had a lot of respect for him for that. But on the other side of it, he had no idea of how to manage a team, manage people and manage disability. So there were some really out of order things that went on. And he didn't create the best team environment because he created a team that was at each other and arguing. And it's like he did it on purpose. So it wasn't the type of co cohesive, uni uni unified sort of space I would expect coming from my background in sport where all of our teams, we were solid. 
our coaches were solid at school. You know, we were taught in a certain way that I don't care what, what you think of each other off the court, off the pitch, when you get on here, you've got each other's back, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, so in, in two sides of it, it was really interesting because on one side, I could see where he was coming from. He just wanted to do the best. He wanted to do the best and he wanted to be like a gold medal winning coach with a team that only trained once a month together. You know, so I could see his frustrations and what he wanted to achieve. But on the other side, he was doing so many things that were really what I understand. Because I was I was nearly 30 years old when I went in. So, you know, a lot of the girls were a lot younger and uh, I could just see what was happening. And I was you just think if you just listen to someone and take a bit of guidance, but maybe his ego and his arrogance got in the way and he couldn't. So, yeah. So it was an, an interesting experience. It was an interesting experience. But the one thing that has happened through all of my, what I would call not so great experiences with coaches in the Great Britain team, they've now got to the point where they've got such a good team set up now. The girls are all getting paid. We didn't get paid. You know, the girls are all getting paid. They're with each other seven days a week training now. So they've got full support, full funding. You know, they're on programs that are really going to help them. We've got like medal winning teams now, top medal winning teams that when we go to the next Paralympics, these girls should be world class because they've got all the support. So me and my old school lot, we always look at it like everything we went through was the building blocks of change for this lot that are in now. So it was all worth it. But yeah, Dan McCaffrey, if he ever watches this, you know, I'd never slag you off, mate, because you were doing the best with what you had. And I fully understand the mentality and what you were trying to achieve. It was just done in a very interesting manner, is all I can say. <laughs> yeah, and especially, like, the sort of coaches you encounter, like, the coaches you encounter, like, throughout life, um, particularly for playing the sport. Like, I've, like, I play football, and I've encountered right. coaches that are, some of them quite interesting, some of them actually really good coaches. Yeah. Um, and by interesting, I uh, some of the stuff that they that some of those coaches did were quite different like yeah. compared to what maybe in that, like the other coaches would normally do. But there is no, I, I don't know, I always say this as well, like there's no right or wrong way to coach really. And obviously there has to be a level of like control. And but at the same time, like everyone has sort of different coaching styles. Yeah, I think it's a lot of it's knowing your players as well. I mean, I've been a coach for years. I'm a level three basketball coach and I'm also a tutor. So, you know, I've I've been through the coaching process. I've coached third div, fourth div, junior, second div, first div and super, super, super league teams. So I've coached all the way through very, very successful teams. And I've tutored a lot of new coaches as well. And it's like I say to them, you know, it's understanding your players and it's making sure it's not about you. Because coaching's not about you, it's about them. And it's about how you help them. This is, my, this is my view on coaching. As a coach, it was never about what I looked like or what was happening in my world. It was always about how can I get the best out of those players? How can I get them to perform to their full potential while they're on the court? How can I help them feel better, be more confident? You know, and so and all the players that played under me will tell, tell you about that with me as a coach you know I'm probably one of the only coaches that if they missed a, missed a shot or threw a ball off court randomly because they've missed it they'd turn around and have their coach crying in tears laughing at them going get on with it just get back down the... <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah. it's like you know so but in the GB teams you don't get that if you make a mistake like that I've had some of the girls that have played with me in non-GB teams and me being a coach and a player with them I remember we had a three-on-three tournament last year and one of the girls I was playing with, I, lo I love her to bits. I've known her since she was a Twinkie. And she's sort of grown up through my women's league team that I used to have. And on the court, um, she's gone to catch a ball. I've thrown a ball at her. And she's gone to catch a ball. And I don't know what she did with her hands, but it just sort of like spanned through her hands and went flying off over the other court. And this made me realise how, how they're treated sometimes in the top teams. Is She turned around and she had a look of like, oh my God, on her face as if she was going to get told off but it was hysterical from my point of view because it looked so funny from my side of the court where she totally and she's such a good player you know and she's just turned around to me literally crying with laughter and instantly I just saw her face soften you know and she relaxed and she laughed and then she got back into the flow of playing because I think if your players are happy 
they're going to perform better. If your players are stressed, you're going to be limiting their performance. So my job was, how can I get these guys in the best space where they're taking it seriously, but they're still having a laugh, so I know that they're going to perform really well? Because we used to get told off, you know, if we laughed on court, you get told, you get taken off. What are you laughing for? Well, that was funny. Do you know what I mean? I've got a sense of humour. <laughs> it's yeah. like there's no, there's no law that says, I don't know a law book, Connell, that says, you know, when you're a high-performance athlete, you can't laugh. It's like, you know, I know what the endorphins get running in your body, the chemicals that help create performance, and they come from laughter and fun and joy and enjoyment of what you're doing. You can still be serious, but you can still have a laugh. Yeah, it's about finding that balance between it sort is. of seriousness and, like, having a laugh. And, like I've, like I've coached, like I'm pretty much a young and upcoming coach myself. Um, I recently obtained my FA level one and I, I did a sports course last year as well at college. And it was a, almost a great experience in terms of like finding like the principles of coaching and that sort of thing. And I learned in particular that like there, there's humor to it. That like if your player misses a shot, or whatever, like I, like I'd laugh sometimes because it's just funny, and I, and I don't, I don't, and I don't laugh in a malicious way. I like sort of laugh because, because I have a sense of humour. There's a bit of a difference there, and yeah, well, I was thinking with the players as well. This is, you know, if you think about, I'm a neuro programmer, so we go back to that side of it. If you want to program good habits into people, they'll they'll do what feels good, and they'll stop doing what feels bad. So if you can imagine this, this is how you program a really bad shot into someone. Every time they shoot the ball and they miss, you go, your angle's all wrong. I've told you before, come in at a 45. What's wrong with you? Just, you know, your wrist, you're not flicking enough. If you're doing that, what they're doing is every time they miss a basket and they get shouted at, they associate shooting with a bad experience. So at an unconscious level, they're fighting themselves as they're coming down a court and they're, they're wanting to give the ball to someone else to shoot that ball because they're yeah. not wanting to re-experience that bad feeling. So that's why when, you know, when people would miss a shot, I'd laugh at them. They'd turn around and I'd laugh and I'd go like the barn doors over there. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so I'd it that way, you know, it's just, I'd, I'd, I'd laugh at them. And every time someone would do something that I want them to remember, I would say to them, that's it. That one remember that feeling that was good but I would never penalize someone for something they did you know they did wrong unless they were doing something stupid like um purposefully fouling someone because they've lost their temper you know then they'd get growled at they'd get a coach growl off of Wendy for that one because we don't have that but you know when it comes to training if you want people to do something well you reward them yeah. the moment they do the good one you go that lovely shot you know if you're as a football coach you know, oh, love, lovely touch there, beautiful touch. That looks yeah. so good. Remember that, you know. And when they don't get it right, just give them an adjustment. Maybe if you try this, or maybe if you turn your body there, or maybe if you look in here. And so you're not, you know, giving them a negative experience. You're just giving them, an, you know, the update they need to get it right. Simple, that, simple formula, Connell. Really, it is definitely is, and you know, it's about nurturing and encouraging like your players and that's and that's retrospective of any sport like if you're co- yeah. if you're coaching other cricket rounders uh, wheelchair basketball professional football if you're coaching these particular sports like you've got to be able to encourage and nurture your players because ultimately they're not going to respond to the old like shouting at them all the time because that doesn't work like you've got to be able to encourage and nurture your players like you as a coach you are almost not just a coach but like their teacher their innovator the you know, you're all these things. You're like a of, cheerleader as well. Yeah, you are. You, you are know? like so, a cheerleader. Yeah, think about knowing your players because I had certain players that would need me to growl at them. So this is what I mean about knowing your players. Get to know your players. Some of them need patting on the back. It's all right. You're doing a good job. Some of them need, you know, I'd spin their chairs around and face them up and put my face right in their face and go, now sort it out. Yeah. You know, what are you doing? Because I knew that's how they respond. But if I did that to someone over here who needs patting, then they'd have a meltdown. So it's making sure you know exactly, you know, what they need. Some some of them just need leaving alone because they know what they've done. They don't need you telling them. You know, that's the thing. So it's just, I think as a, a good coach just gets to, you know your players, know what motivates them individually and as a team. 
and just yeah. and just remember it's not about you it's about them at the end of the day because they're on the pitch playing yeah definitely because like sport is so important for like mental health in particular because it releases those hormones which the endorphins which enhances high performance in it yeah and you know when you play when you play a sport like even just for a laugh you like you feel so good within yourself because you've done something you've exercised and you sort of released those as you as i said like endorphins and you've released those sort of like toxins within within and you sort of forget uh, the things that are going on like at home or wherever just just for that period of time when you play a sport and that's what i felt personally in my mental health that when i when i play a sport that i forget about my problems yeah same same here i use it for many different reasons i mean i exercise every day and like this morning so yesterday we had um, an event one of my closest friends lost his dog and i was there when she passed and i woke up this morning and i was just feeling so low and so down and it was like right i, I just want to kick myself out of this and i got on my treadmill to start with just walking and it's like i'm just going to walk and i was actually crying while i was walking do you know what i mean yeah and it was like this will this will move this will shift and then i got on the rowing machine and you know i could feel the body chemistry moving a little bit and i started feeling better so my thoughts started changing so the crying stopped you know and then at that point i was like right now i can remember the nice stuff and then by the time i got on the spin bike you know, I've got a smile on my face and yeah. the chemistry's feeling good and I'm thinking about all the lovely, all the lovely dog walks. We had the dog holidays, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it is, I use it, I do use it as a, a really good state changer. I'm fully aware of when I'm, when I'm feeling low, how the body wants its chemistry to move. That's it. And emotions are just energy in motion. So what's the quickest way you can move the energy? Do some exercise. I also love team sports. I don't know about yeah. you, but I love that camaraderie and I am very competitive. I don't, I, I sound competitive. So I don't really care if we win or lose as long as we have fun. But when I'm playing, I put everything into it. And I want everybody on the court with me to put everything into it. Because I want to know that we've done the best job we could possibly do as a team while we're out there. But I do love, I do love a team sport as well. Yeah, I, I'm a big, big advocate. I, I love playing team sports as well because I... You, like team sports is like it's not just you playing sport and you're put together with a bunch of teammates like you are you can make friends as well and you can make yeah. lifelong friends like i've been at like football clubs for example where i like i've made friends from that and you know it's i think sport is such a great way to like make friends as well and have fun while you're playing because there has to be a balance between like sort of like competitiveness and the having fun and it's about putting that 100 percent effort that, and doing the best you can to ensure that i don't know if you're somebody who's quite competitive and wants to win all the time then it's it's not you've got to prove it by your actions you can't just say yeah. it by words you've got to prove that by your actions that you're going to put that 100 percent effort in and it's a t with a team as well it's a team isn't it it's all people so you know, I've seen many teams go downhill because there's that one player. You have that one player who thinks they are, you know, the be all and end all of everything. And they'll try and do everything on their own and, you know, don't use the team. And then when the score starts going down because they're not using the rest of the team, they'll start shouting at the team. And yeah, so I, I do love a, a team that everybody on that court, when we play basketball, you have five players. And I always say to everybody on that court needs to be a threat. So in training, I make sure that, you know, everybody has their own shoot. We all shoot different. So all the guards, you know, because I grew up with, um, I don't know if you know a lot about basketball, but there was a lot of guards that I grew up playing with that would go, oh, I'm just a good picking player, which means that they're good at getting a big player in the key to shoot. But the thing is, if the big player's caught out up the court and they're being defended then that little player has never developed their own talents because they think they're just there for the purpose of that other player. So I would always make sure that every single player would develop an offensive and defensive strength. So if anything like that happened, they can feel of value because I think everybody on that court is of value and it shouldn't just be about the one. I always say to people, if you want to be the one star wonder, you know, go and throw a javelin or something. Yeah. Go and, go and do something on your own. Because this is about a team here. It's about a team. It's about everybody getting a bit of it. 
Yeah, definitely. Like, how do you think that sports clubs in particular can be more inclusive to disability? I think just be, becoming aware of how adaptable disabled people are to play in sport. So we've developed, you know, we've had so much fun. The, my, my mates who I play basketball with, we've done things like when we've got bored playing basketball, <laughs> we've put up um, badminton nets and we, we developed a game of wheelchair volleyball because we found a volleyball. We was like, guys, do you can play volleyball in a wheelchair? I don't know. Right, come on, let's make the game. And it got, in the end, it got so competitive because we'd sort of got all the rules. We started making up the rules around it and stuff like this, you know. So we wheelchair users in sports chairs are very, very adaptable and they can pretty much do anything. And you could adapt. I think it's the, the able-bodied people having the confidence to just try stuff. And not worry about things not working out or going wrong because, you know, we can adapt so quickly to different things and just include people. I mean, I play badminton in my sports chair. You know, I play tennis in my sports chair. I play volleyball in my sports chair. There's so many things that you can actually do in a sports chair. That's what they're designed for. So I think it's more awareness with able-bodied, you know, if there's able-bodied clubs and they want to be more inclusive, it's just, you know, think out the box a little bit and ask the disabled person as well say you know how can we incorporate you in this and they'll tell you because they're so flexible we're just all so flexible and adaptable we don't see ourselves as disabled we just see ourselves with different abilities that's it so just get out of the box think out of the box a little bit how can you incorporate it yeah definitely and that's the message to coaches out there it's about you being adaptable and to be able to almost accommodate because disabled people like I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's even a disability. It's an ability. It's just different. That's the way yeah, I see it. Yeah, it just comes down to equipment. Sometimes just might need to, you know, it's, it's just different equipment, different spaces. You know, like I say, it's just thinking out the box. There's always a way you can adapt something so someone can join in. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, definitely. Like you've done like public speaking in the past. Like you've done a lot of that, and you've done a lot of things like where you've helped people like trying to get to recognize their own potential and you are like you are quite training like emotion emotional support if I'm correct yeah yeah I've trained in neurology for years and years and I'm an emotional therapist so I work with recoding human experience to get people over like trauma and PTSD and stuff but I fully understand the brain system and how it works and how we create outcomes or not or you know, I've just worked. This is a system. It's just like a, a system that comes with an operate an operating manual. You just have to yeah. learn the operating manual to operate it to its full potential. Yeah, definitely. Like when you've gone to places, like you've been to places all over the world and done these speeches. Like, was there anything in particular that sort of stood out to you or had an impact on you? The fact that I could actually do it for a start, I mean, I, ran, I always say randomly, there's nothing random in life. So I fell into the speaking environment in 2011 and it was because I quit work. It was 2011, 2012. I just decided I'm done. I can't work for someone else anymore. I've had enough. I'm going to go self-employed. And I literally phoned up where I worked and said, I'm not coming back. I resign. And said to my partner at the time, I've resigned. And he was like, well, that's interesting. What are you going to do for money? I was like, I don't know. I'm going to do anything for 12 months. I said, I'm just going to say yes to everything. Don't care what it is. I'm going to say yes for 12 months. And I just said, universe, give me the least amount of work for the most amount of reward for everybody involved. Right. That's what I asked for. So next thing I get an email from a friend saying there's a company looking for Paralympians or Olympians to do talks in schools. Now, understand this, Connell. I had never done a talk in my life. I wasn't a public speaker. If you'd have asked me to stand up and talk about anything, I'd have literally just dug a hole in the floor and buried myself. It was just something I wasn't comfortable doing. And I thought, right, well, the, I said, I'm going to say yes to anything for 12 months. So I replied to this email and said, I'd, I'd like to be given the opportunity. What do I do? They said, we need to see a video of you talking and just send us your CV. So I sent a CV off, didn't have a video. So I went to my local school, borrowed a classroom, I put my GB kit on, borrowed some kids, 
a mate of mine with a video camera and just did a mock talk, right? And then sent them off this talk. They phoned me up and said, can we just ask you, was that a setup, that talk? And I said, yeah, I've never done a talk in my life. So I just borrowed some children, a classroom and <laughs> we videoed it. They said, lovely, we'd like to give you the job. So I was like, oh, wonderful. What's that then? You know, just thinking, oh, this is not, not knowing what I was walking into. So they said, next week, you've got a job down in Kent, 750 kids. You're going to go down there. You're going to talk about your life, inspiration, motivation for about 40 minutes. Then you're going to answer questions and spend the morning with the children. At that point, I went white, literally went white, started having heart palpitations and started thinking, oh, my, oh, no, what have I done? Oh, no, 750 kids. Oh, no. Oh, no, I don't even know who I am, you know, and I started writing. It was the funniest thing. I wrote my life out on cards, Connell. I had about 40 of them, right? Thinking, who am I? Where have I been? What have I done? I don't even know my name, you know, yeah. and I wrote all these things. out. I remember driving down to Kent with my friend on the phone and I was going, I just want to come home. I feel sick. I can't do this. I, re I just can't. I don't even know why I've said yes. And he said to me, he said, Wendy, the children will love you because you play wheelchair basketball and children do not judge. He said, all they will care about is seeing your basketball chair and playing with your basketball. He said, they won't judge you, just enjoy it. So I've got off the phone, I pulled up in the car park and I remember sitting there reading all these cards, thinking I was born, when was I born? I don't even know when I was born now. And I, I started shaking, I was feeling physically sick and I was just thinking, why am I here? I need to go home. And then I just thought, I'll stop it, pull yourself together. I threw the cards in the back of the car and I just thought to myself, if I do not know my life by now, I shouldn't be doing this. I got out, got my basketball chair, went in, met the head teacher, had a cup of tea, chilled out a bit, went into the sports hall. And I remember these children just started peeling in. There were just reams and reams of them coming in. And I kept nearly blacking out thinking, oh no, I was panicking. My heart was racing. I was just thinking, how many more children can they fit in this hall? Oh my God, no, I'm going to die. You know, I was seriously going through all these things, just not knowing what to do. I was shaking. I had my hands on the table trying to look like I was calm. And I remember when I started talking, I just took a big, deep breath and just opened my mouth. And these words just started coming out. And I spoke for about 35 minutes. And I remember all of the children just being really quiet and like, you know, just sort of staring at me. Uh, when I finished, they all started clapping and cheering and I was just thinking, I don't even remember what I said to them. Do you know what I mean? I hope I didn't swear, because I do tend to swear every now and then. And they were primary school, and I was thinking, oh, my Lord, I really hope I hadn't sworn all the way through this. And uh, I just remember them all clapping and that. And then they were asking me questions, and they had some just amazing questions. And then I spent the morning with the kids, and they were just lovely. They, you know, it's, oh, it's just such a really lovely experience. And when I walked out of there afterwards, I thought, right. One, I enjoyed it, and two, I'm not dead. It didn't kill me, so it can't <laughs> be that bad, right? I got some really good feedback. I don't remember what I said to them, but then I just went in the same thing with every school. I'd just sit there, I'd smile at the kids when they came in, and then I'd just start talking. And what I found I developed was I'm probably one of the only, a rare few speakers on the planet that don't prepare anything. I cannot prepare speeches or anything like that. So when I've done all these talks, I did my TED talk and all this sort of stuff, um, I just say to them, give me the subject matter and tell me what outcome you want. So how do you want these people to feel at the end of it? And then literally tell me how long you want me to talk for. And I can guarantee you I will talk to literally to the minute they've given me. And my technique is I just walk in, I connect with the energy in the room, I have a process that I bring myself back into balance, then I just open my mouth. And I've done it for 10 years now. I've never had a bad experience. I have, I've actually done so many talks. I don't remember a word of what I've said, but everyone like claps at the end and goes, Oh wow, that's so inspiring. I think I don't even remember what I talked about. It's like I sort of drift into a parallel universe when I'm doing it. And then when I stop, I sort of come back to like conscious Wendy land, but it was something I never, never thought I'd do it at school. Never, ever thought I'd end up in this line of business. Yeah, because that's the thing, like, public speaking can be so, like, nerve-wracking. It can be quite daunting. And, like, the fact that, you know, the fact that you didn't really have the confidence at first, you were thinking, oh, no, like, what are these people going to think of me? What are they going to say? And, but 
in actuality, they find you inspiring because you've spoken your life story and that then inspires those people to fulfill their potential and that they feel that they can go and do something in life that means something to them. And the greatest thing about, like, I don't know, public speaking, for example, is that you can inspire so many people and you don't even realise it. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and that's what it is at the at the end of it. You know, when you've got all these kids, it's not because it's not just kids. Obviously, now I I do talks all over the place at conferences and all sorts of stuff. So it's I spend more time probably with adults now than what I do with children. I do still work in schools, but obviously this year that's been you know poleaxed a little bit. Um, but it's even the adults when they you know they'll ask me they'll go are you you know are you in pain at all with your back throughout the day? And it's like yeah, twenty four hours a day. I'm always in pain. They're like, how do you have a smile on your face if you're in pain? Because it's normal. I've had it since I was 17 years old. You know, I've got two choices. I can lay on the floor and cry or I can get on with life. And when you, you know, when you put it like that to people and they just go, wow, you know, I've been moaning about my leg for three days, you know, and I just say to them, well, if there was a zombie apocalypse, could you run? And they go, yeah. (laughs) I go, I'm cannon fodder. Do you know what I mean? Appreciate the fact appreciate the fact that you can run you know pain is 95 percent psychosomatic anyway and it's only you know five percent physical so my pain because it's normal when it's there and it's there most of the day i just tell myself it's just normal i worry when it's not there connell if i wake up and I go hang on something something doesn't feel right in my body you know it's because i'm not in pain you go that's a bit weird sort of thing but it's just it's just your perspective on it how you you view things is the result you're going to get yeah yeah definitely and i think the fact that you've inspired so many people not not just through your like like paralympian journey but through life in general like i can imagine you've been to so many like not just schools but like other workplaces or colleges and like and i can imagine each one of them has taken something from it and applied it to themselves i hope Yeah, I've had such a diverse life experience as well. I mean, I grew up in a pub. That was a very interesting environment. I've got two parents that have both, you know, skills and talents. My dad, very practical man. So me and my sister were taught how to drive cars, mend cars, drive motorbikes, fish, garden. You know, he taught us about all the wildlife. He's taught taught us to shoot, to fight. Then my mum, you know, to cook, compassion, learning language maths you know she's got a whole different skill set and they've just taught us to be resilient and to pick yourselves up to have like say empathy compassion for people but to stand up for yourself as well stand up for you know i've had and i've had so many experiences through life that have been positive and negative you know i've I've been in some really dark places and some really great places And I get to, when I'm talking to kids at school, you know, I can share, I can empathise with them when they're having bad experiences and I can help them find a different perspective to come out of it rather than just from a textbook. Do you know what I mean? Just say, well, you know, if you do X, Y, Z, from actual life experience, I can share my life experiences with them so they can go, actually, yeah, she has been where we've been. She understands what, you know, it's like to self-harm, have suicidal thoughts, you know, be yeah. in those places of depression and that. She's, she's actually been there. So, you know, she's talking from a space of knowing and they can, they can feel that as well. So, you know, I always just think every, everything that's been, I don't even want to call it rubbish, but every experience in my life that's not been great, what it has done is given me a tool to help someone else. And so that's why I appreciate it all. I've never changed a thing in my life, not one thing. And I've, I've, you know, I've got some things that people go, wouldn't you want to change that? And I'm like, no, not at all, because that really taught me a lot of stuff. Do you know what I mean? Um, and it's just, uh, yeah, I just think all experiences through life, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly has, has taught me really good tools and really good strategies that I can help other people with if they want to change something. Yeah, definitely. Like going back to the public speaking, I remember my sort of first proper public speaking of them and I was absolutely petrified I was terrified because I remember I met you at Highlands House that was when I went with um Kieran and Charlie ah yes yes and um I remember I was gonna speak a bit about the I was gonna speak about like the multi-school football club and 
I remember being, I remember my speech was quite passionate. I sort of like called out um, people. It was quite a, I don't know, I'd written a speech, but then I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go for my own head. Yeah. And sometimes it's much better to sometimes just go from the heart. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. That's what, I mean, that's what I do when I, I say to you, when I do talks, I just connect in from this space. I just have a technique. I just literally stand in the room and breathe. And as people are coming in, I just smile, you know, connect with a few people. And then I, ju I just sort of feel it before I start talking. And then it will always come from that, that genuine space. You know, you're not reading. I always think if you've written a speech, it's not relevant to the people you're talking to because you've written it a week before. So all the energy was different around it, wasn't it? And, you know, I mean, I love the Maltby Schools Council as well. Mm. That's, you know, one of my, my favourite things to be involved with as an ambassador because just the ethos behind it, just taking away the boundaries around, you know, I, I, I hate the word disability, Connor. I hate it. I, it. We need to change it to something yeah, else. We, yeah, we, we have do. Disability. I mean, through the Multi-Schools Council, for anybody watching this who doesn't know, it's something I got involved with quite a few years ago because I went to an event at Marketfield Special School, met Kieran Pierce and all you guys, and mm. I just remember having a day where I didn't realise how tight and up my own backside, so to speak, I was. Do you know what I mean? I was very much like couldn't show, couldn't show um, myself off, or really, I didn't really let myself go much. Do you know what I mean? And I spent the day in your school. And I just remember when I met Charlie and them as well. And uh, they made me play football. And I was like, guys, I don't think I can play football. Don't worry, we'll move your legs for you. And it was like, oh, Lord. And I remember Kieran walking outside and seeing me on the playground with you lot playing football. And I've got two of you holding me up. Um, I can't remember who it was, but someone was swinging my leg to kick the ball if I couldn't do it. Oh, you know what? It was hysterical. It was oh hysterical, but it just made me realise that, like, wow, you've been so uptight for so long. You've never really let yourself go. And these kids don't care. Mm. You know, they really don't care. I was being hugged by everybody. And then, you know, when we were singing in the hall, it's like you join and you sing. You just express yourself. You just live life. And, you know, that was one of the, the best experiences I've had. And it's one of the most powerful experiences because it got me to start being me. Because what I realised before I met you lot is that I wasn't being me 100%. I was holding myself back and restricting myself for some reason. And that day at Marketfield, that like, it just allowed something to explode out of me that was like, I no longer care. It's just like, no, 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 I can, you know, I can sing in public if I want now. It doesn't matter. You know, it was, yeah, it was a wonderful experience. I love you guys for that. Yeah, and like, I have some of those that had been in the school for like 11 years and uh, like often we'd have people come in and sort of do speeches and that like whether that was you or whether that was uh, someone else or whether that was a former student and you sort of take like each things from that and you, you sort of it sort of um you know like sort of helps your perspective and you sort of take each little thing from from that person and you sort of try and apply it to your life and that's the thing I sort of touched upon earlier like when I've been in places where there's been speakers that have come in and done talks like I would try and sort of take each little thing from that and try and apply it to my life and uh, especially the sort of sports side of things and the confidence and the thing I'd sort of like such a touch upon is like Building confidence is so important, like not just in sport, but in life. Yeah, it's and it's I always think I like to I'm the same as you. I like to learn from people. So whether it's a client I have in here for mental health with help with PTSD or emotional therapy, I or or I'm at a talk listening to someone else or I'm just talking to my sister or my parents or, you know, like yourself. But I always take something from that experience to enhance my experience. People, I think they don't listen enough, Connell, to other people. They're always queuing up what they want to say next and, you know, not really paying attention and, and listening. And when you really listen to people, you'll learn so much information on a daily basis. You just learn about their life and every, every aspect you learn about someone else's life 
just allows you to, you know, enjoy yours more, expand yours more, feel more grateful, feel more humble. Um, I just think every person you meet, if you just listen, you can gain something so precious from that experience that you can take through life yourself. Yeah, definitely. And like, I've done public speaking events in the past, like, whereas I've spoken to adults, I've spoken to um, children as well. And public speaking is something I would like to go into more because you don't know who you're inspiring and you don't know who you could like and from that speech you sort of don't know who you're helping because when you do a speech like and your words can help someone it really really can and how you use those words are so so important because when you do when you sort of speak about your life experiences or spoken about something that's like we've spoken something that you've achieved like that person is going to take something from that and they're going to then feel more confident within themselves and that um makes them feel better about like their self-esteem in particular yeah sometimes people will sit they sit inside and they might have a particular issue that they just hold inside because they think they're the only person ever experiencing it and then they listen to a talk that you do and you talk about that subject and it suddenly can make them realize that oh, I'm not I'm not alone I'm not the only one you know, like you say, it can spark that little bit in them that then helps them take that first step to getting some help or doing something different or trying something new. Yeah, definitely. And um, like, not to be egotistical here, but if anyone wants uh, Wendy to like go into um, any like workplace organisation, like Wendy's the person, because I can guarantee you that you will take something from that and that she'll really, really inspire inspire you and not only just inspire you, but sort of give you, like, makes you think almost. Because, I I mean, I want to, like I said, I want to go into public speaking a bit more. I'd like to go into more places and, like, speak. And that is something I would like to do, like, more in future. And I hope I'm quite able to do that, not to sound like I'm up myself at all. But No, just do it. All I can say, Connor, is do it. Contact people. And just that's how, you know, that's how I started. So if there's places I want to go into, I go and do a lot of stuff for free because I just like, you know me, I like talking. So I'll just go, ah, oh, come and I'll come and do that. <laughs> yeah. It just, it builds your confidence and it shares, it shares your story and your knowledge out there and then people refer you and then you'll find you'll actually get, you know, a lot of my work comes from referrals. So someone will phone me up and just say, so-and-so said to give you a ring. They had you in for a talk. You know, could you come and do a talk for us? How much do you charge? And I'll be like, yeah. And I always work within people's budgets as well. So, you know, it's the the flexible and adaptable. To me, it's not about money, Connell. It's about sharing something that can help someone else. And if my experiences help someone else grow, learn, think just in a different way and can improve something about their experience of life, then... Who am I to keep it to myself? Yeah, definitely. And you've written two books, uh, which I see one of them up on your shelf there. Product placement. (laughs) And the other one I've actually got here, which is behind my calendar. I'm going to pull that out as well. Yeah, so that's that's the guide, quick fix guide to wheelchair basketball. So if you want to go and purchase that book... uh, please do it's it'll be on amazon it'll be on various websites this the quick fix guide to wheelchair basketball the reason i wrote this was because there were so many things i wasn't taught for the first five years that if i'd have known it would have made my experience i'd have got a lot better a lot quicker so i basically wrote it's a beginner's guide for people who just want to learn some quick fixes learn some rules about the sport and just have a look at a few of the players and that and it's lovely because it's all got um it's got all my friends on there and it's got some lovely pictures all the way through. It'll show you some of the GB athletes and it's got tips and tools and quotes. And I thoroughly enjoyed writing that. And then we've got the other one, 50 Ways to Change, which is personal development. So it's a how-to of you. Yeah, because I've seen the, I saw upon your shelf there, it was like the 50 Ways to Change. Um, yeah. Can you explain like what that book is about and why you wrote it? So this this one was... 
I actually originally started writing, I had the name in my head for years. I just wanted to write a book called 50 Ways to Change. And the purpose behind it was I was bored when I was in Las Vegas at a conference waiting for my friend every morning in Starbucks. She was always late. So I'd sit there and I love journaling. I don't know about you, but I love writing by hand. And I started writing this. I just thought, oh, I'll write a book while I'm sat here. So I started just writing down things that inspired me. So this is full of, the first part of the book has got 50 of my favourite bits of awareness raising information that helped me become aware of my human system and how I either limit myself or expand myself. And then after that, it breaks them down into sections and it teaches you how to become aware of your stuff and then change it. So it's like the first part is reading and raising awareness and the second part is a practical guide. It literally, I've put loads of exercises in there for people so they can go through and actually work out what their map of reality is, how they got their operating system, what they like, what they're not happy with and how to change it. So it's like a, that's why I always say it's a, it's a how-to of you because it will take you through the whole process of understanding how you work as a human system and how you can change things, how you developed all your beliefs and your habits and your behaviours and, you know, how you can change them all and do something about them. So that's why I wrote that and I love it. I still read it myself. I read it and go, oh, I didn't realise I put that in there. That's interesting. Yeah. And, that, and that's one of the great things as well because, like, also, again, if you want to purchase... Um, when you book, please do so. I can imagine you'll definitely find it interesting and that will give you... Oh, this, uh, this book as well, Connell. So this book, everybody who purchased this book, the money doesn't go to me. All of the proceeds that come in from this book, I get a payment comes in from Amazon once every three months, I think it is, um, then goes into a separate bank account and I use it to provide sessions for people who haven't got the financial means to get the help. So it's actually, this was like a give back as well because there's so many people that can't afford mental health services. And I just thought, how can I help them? I know I'll write a book. And then that means that while I'm, cause I do so many free sessions and obviously I need to pay bills. Yeah. <laughs> cause I'd have no money and no food. So I just thought, how can I do this and still, still earn a living? So I thought, right, I'll write the book and all the proceeds from the book will go to all the free sessions for people, the people who can't afford the stuff. I'll just use the book money to pay for that. So by going through the book, you learn something yourself, but it's always a, it's also a give back as well, which is I thought was quite nice. Yeah, I might now. I'm considering purchasing the books myself. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. So my final question to you, Wendy, is yeah. uh, which is this question has put a lot of guests on the spot that I've had on. What's your favourite quote? My favourite quote is "Whatever you think, you're not wrong." Wendy, absolutely love that. You've you've been excellent. You've spoken about your experience in the Olympics. You've spoken about uh, spinal injuries. Spoken about mental health. You've spoken about disability. You've spoken about and touched upon so many issues. Wendy, thank you so so much for coming on. You've been an absolutely brilliant guest. And if you are someone who's listening to this and wants to come to this podcast, please email me if you want to talk about whether that's mental health or another issue. And please do so. And also listen, listen to this podcast, download this because that would really mean a lot to me. So once again, Wendy, thank you so, so much for coming on. Thank you for having me on, Connell. It's lovely to see you again. Okay. All right. Bye bye, everyone.